0: So there are, I see a lot of new faces here today, and um, I'd like to introduce myself first. My name is David Ha, and I'm one of the other I'm the other intern pastor here at uh, New Philly Hongda Alpha. And I grew up in Texas. Uh, I came to Korea a few years ago and started this internship. And today I have the honor of starting a sermon series that we're going to be going into for the next few weeks on the book of Mark, um, and I'll be preaching on the beginning portion. Um, so. The next few weeks, Pastor Susie, Pastor Emily, and I will all be taking turns and we'll be uh, preaching through this book of Mark. And it's a great book uh, about Jesus. So let's get right into it. Who is Mark and why is he writing this gospel? This is a pretty important question to ask when you're reading any form of letter or any kind of information. You want to know who wrote this and why do I have to read this, right? Uh, So the gospel of Mark was written by a guy named Mark. And um, he's also known as John Mark, and he was actually not one of Jesus' disciples, uh, nor was he a firsthand eyewitness to Jesus' life. So what gives this guy, Mark, the credibility to write a book like this about Jesus? Well, he actually had some good friends, Okay, and life is all about who you know. Right, who you have connections with. And his connection, he had many connections. One of them was the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament. The other connection, (coughs) the other connection that he had was with Peter, Simon Peter, the, the disciple of Jesus. And he was, John Mark was actually the disciple's assistant and his writer. So this is why we have this book that we have today, the Gospel of Mark. And the stories that we find in this book are actually the verbal stories that Peter would give to Mark, and Mark would write them down. And so Mark is writing this down for the distribution of the early church. Um, In the early church, uh, most of the time when you wrote a letter out, it would get distributed to all the other churches as well. So that's where Mark's authority and his uh, credibility comes from. Even though he didn't know Jesus personally, he knew Simon Peter, a disciple of Jesus, right? So he's kind of like a third-hand writer. Um, But if you read through the whole book of Mark, um, there's actually evidence to why he wrote this book. Uh, There's other evidence that he wrote this specific gospel for Gentile Christians. And what a Gentile was is a non-Jew, any non-Jew. So if I look around the room today... I see a lot of non-Jews in here. So we're Gentiles as well. We're Gentile Christians. And this is the target audience that Mark is writing to. So this book of Mark is actually important to us to understand. And in this book, we see Mark going really trying his best effort to explain the, the Jewish laws and customs and prophecies, all these different things that a Gentile like us wouldn't know back then. So this is why Mark is writing this book. And this is important for us to understand today. Mark is saying that all the Jewish laws found in the Old Testament, these laws are important to us. One of the questions that many Christians ask today is, why do I have to read my Old Testament, right? It's so boring, like it's so dry. Maybe I'll read a psalm or two or like Proverbs or something like that. But like the laws, the prophets, these are all like really dry and I can't read through it. Like even the genealogies are so hard to read. They're, they're so not relevant to me. That's, that's what people say, right? In fact, the popular belief in the world today is that the Bible itself is a very old, archaic, outdated book full of outdated laws. Why do we have to listen to this book? And it's actually a sentiment that Christ, a lot of Christian circles have today, too, that the Word of God is actually not the Word of God. It's actually just uh, it's something that is good to listen to, but it's not the actual living, breathing Word of God. And I hope that's not one of you. I hope you're not one of those people that believe that. Uh, we believe that the Word of God is living and active, and it's, it's relevant to us today. It transcends time. It's something that does not change from age to age. The God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament, and He's the God of today. Can you just imagine for me with, for one second? Just imagine if God changed His Word. From day to day. What if he was just like one of us, and he'd be like, you know what? Gravity is great and all, but today I don't think it's gonna work great, like right now. Gravity was great yesterday, but today it's it's not so good. So then all of a sudden, oh, that's awesome for us. We get to fly around, like do whatever we want, right? But then the next day he's like, you know what? I go back on that. Gravity's good after all. And then all of a sudden we're flat, right? We're dead, right? If that was the God we served, he's not a God worthy. serving he's not a god worthy of worship he is the same yesterday today and forever amen mark is letting us know the same thing in his book the god of the old testament is the god of the new testament he's letting us know the laws and traditions of the jews because they were given by god these are not jewish laws even though they're labeled jewish laws these are laws that are given by god to the jews And like I said earlier, none of us here are Jews by birth, and that makes us all Gentile Christians. So Mark is trying to help us understand what these Old Testament laws are. So now that we know who Mark is and why he's writing this book, what is he writing about? And those two things, why he's writing and what he's writing about, they can be intertwined, but they're not exactly the same thing. So we're going to go into what he's writing about. Uh, Pastor Emily read earlier uh, Mark chapter 1. 1 to 15, right? And we're going to focus on verse 1, especially today, uh, but we're going to use the rest of those verses, verses 2 to 15, to really expound on verse 1, because they're all tied together. So verse 1, let's read it together. Ready? Shijak? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. One thing you need to know about John Mark, the writer of this book, is that he's a pretty straightforward kind of guy. He's he has a, a writing style that is very no nonsense. He just gets straight to the point. He has a writing style that will like go like really quick. And actually, the Gospel of Mark is actually the shortest Gospel in in the Bible with sixteen chapters. Uh, Matthew has like twenty eight. John has twenty one. Luke has eighteen, I think. Um, but the Gospel of Mark is the shortest and has sixteen. And Mark, his favorite word to use is the Greek word euthus. So we're going to actually learn a lot of Greek today. I'm going to teach you a little bit of Greek. The Greek word euthus means immediately. His favorite word is immediately. He's, he uses it 41 times in his book and 11 times just in the first chapter. So immediately something happens, and immediately something happens, and immediately something happens. So he's like very fast-paced, very straightforward kind of guy. And if we look at this first verse, it's, it's kind of the same. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's a very concise, straight-to-the-point summary of what he's going to tell you in the rest of the book. Okay? This is Mark's thesis statement. If we're writing an essay, right, we have to have a thesis statement. This is Mark's thesis statement. And at first glance, it doesn't really mean much to us. We kind of read it and be like, oh, that's great. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We've heard this before. But... If we unpack the meaning of the words, like I said before, we're going to go into the Greek because it's important to understand the meaning of the words. Uh, We're going to see that there's very important theological implications involved with this verse. So let's break it down. The first is the beginning of the gospel, the gospel. Does anyone know the Greek word that is used for gospel, gospel? Anybody? No. Okay. I'll give you a hint. There's a popular Japanese anime with the name of this. No, okay. Recently, another hint. Recently, um, Ant-Man and the Wasp came out, right? I'm not going to ruin the story for you, but one of the the actress's name, the the wasp, her name in English is actually from the Greek word. Evangelion, there we go. So the the actress's name is Evangeline Lilly, and Evangeline comes from Evangelion. But in the Greek, it is Euangelion euangelion so e u a so yeah it's euangelion and most bibles translate this as the gospel right but in the niv it's translated as the good news the good news of jesus christ and when we think of this word gospel These days, we kind of think of it in a Christian context right away. When we hear the word gospel, if someone walks by you in the street and say, oh, believe in the gospel, you're going to be like, oh, stay away from me, you Christian, right? Like most people will think that way. But during the first century Roman era, this word euangelion was not tied to a religious aspect. It was actually used for state letters or secular letters. Um, and it was not used just for any kind of news, any news, right? It was just, it was used for news that had weight or a large scale to it. It was actually life-changing or history-making news. So, evangelion news was news that would change your life. And the example that I'd like to give is, um, this is actually a Roman letter, the beginning of a Roman letter that was written around Jesus' time. It began like this, the beginning of the Gospel of Caesar Augustus. This is pretty much the same as the one that we just saw, right? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, except Caesar Augustus, his name is there. And the, letter, the content of the letter that was given was, this is the birth of Caesar Augustus, and this is him stepping into uh, the emperorship of uh, Rome at the time. So the scale of, of which Mark is using, he's comparing an emperor's ascent to the throne with Jesus. That's the kind of scale we're looking at. So he's writing this about Jesus Christ, right? But what is this good news? What is Mark talking about? Where does this word come again? And we see it again in verse 15. 14 and 15, but especially 15. And this is Jesus' first statement in the Gospel of Mark. So it's pretty important. We have to listen to what Jesus says, right? It's the first red lettering in your Bible of Mark. And he says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. What is Jesus doing here? What is he saying the gospel is? He's saying that the gospel is what? The first portion. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the good news. He's saying that the gospel is the kingdom of God. Or the good news is what? The reign of God. God's reign over us. That's good news. That's kind of not exciting for us, right? Oh, God reigning over us? Okay, that's great. But this idea, this idea that great, that God's reign is great news is actually not new. It's not the first time that we see this in the Bible. If you look at Isaiah 52, verse 7, it says this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Your God reigns. So again, Mark is saying, there's a connection here. There's a connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The laws that God established, the kingdom that God established in the Old Testament is still valid today. But if we look at what Jesus says again, If we look at it again, what does he say? It's not just believe in the gospel. Great news. The kingdom of God is here. What does he say? He says, repent. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel is not just, hey, here's some good information. No, it's repent. Turn from your ways. The gospel is indicative. It gives us information. But it's also imperative. It tells us what we need to do. This is the same call that Jesus is calling us to today. Repent. Turn from your ways. Turn back to God. Stop living for yourself. Stop living for your comfort. Stop living for your wealth. Live for God's kingdom. Let God reign in your life. This is the gospel that Mark is introducing to us too. But then what does he say next? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So after getting our attention with the gospel, hey, great news, everybody. Mark identifies who this gospel will be about, right? It's a person, Jesus Christ. And the Greek word, again, for Jesus Christ is Jesus Christos. You cannot have that like little Christos, Jesus Christos. And, man, English is, is a pretty weird language. We always take things and mess it up. Jesus, where does the J come from? I don't know. And then we drop a few letters, too. So, actually, if you're a Spanish speaker, it's actually closer to the Spanish. It's Jesus Cristo or Jesucristo, right? Jesus Cristo sounds much more similar to the Greek. Or even in Korean. Korean is actually closer to the original Greek than the English is. It's Jesus Cristo, right? Jesus Cristo. And I don't know about you, but I grew up in the church. Um, I grew up in a small town city called El Paso, Texas. I was a pastor's kid. It was kind of like a mission, mission field because it's a very small city with a few Koreans, and my dad was a Korean pastor there. But when I was young, I did Sunday school. And when I was growing up, I thought, oh, Jesus Christ, what an interesting name. Not because it had any particular significance, only because I thought that Jesus Christ was his full name. And everyone else in the Bible only had one name, right? Everyone was like Abraham or Moses or David. No one had two, two names, on the, except for Jesus Christ. I was like, oh, Jesus, and his last name is Christ. Right? That's what I thought growing up. I'm sure I'm not the only one that thought that. Right? Um, and I'm sh- maybe some of you thought that even today, but I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but Jesus, Christ is not his last name. Christ is not even his name. Okay? We're going to grow into what it means. So Christos or Christ, what does this mean? In Hebrew, it's Mashiach. Mashiach. You, you got to have that in there. Mashiach in Hebrew, or Messiah, right? We've, we've heard this word before in the Bible. as oh, Messiah. What does that mean? It means anointed one or chosen one. So Jesus, the chosen one. Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus Christ, Messiah, right? To us, again, these words don't really mean that much. Chosen one of what? Anointed one of what? But if you threw out this word, Christos or Messiah especially in a Jewish context if you said that this guy is the Messiah then people would start flipping out they would start flipping chairs they'd be like oh my gosh he's finally here things like that right but one thing that we need to know is that while mark is really pushing this connection mark is really pushing this connection right one thing we have to to understand is that Jesus never calls himself the Messiah and we'll go into a little bit of that later. But this Messiah, in the Hebrew context, this was a person that was prophesied about, was written about in every single book of the Old Testament. So if you threw out this word in a Jewish context, then people would go crazy. It would be major news. It would be the gospel, right? And the way that Mark is making this connection is actually by, uh, by quoting an old testament quotation it's the second verse right that we read it says this as it is written in isaiah the prophet behold i send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make his path straight and then what happens next the messenger shows up john appeared baptizing in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for their forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So this John, he's making this connection, right, with John. And we'll skip down to verse 8, verse 7, sorry. He says, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So Mark is making this connection for us, that John is this messenger, and after him will come the Messiah. So if John is this messenger, then who is the Messiah? Jesus. Jesus, right? And as I mentioned before, Jesus never said, I'm the Messiah. I've come to set you free. He never said this, okay? He always, it's always in reference from another person that says it. Like, oh, people will claim that he is the Messiah, right? And people in the theological realm call this the messianic secret. And this is actually a big theme in the book of Mark, that Jesus never says he's the Messiah. This is called the mess- messianic secret. And the reason for this messianic secret, why would, why would Jesus do this? Why would he not just say, hey, I'm the Messiah, to sit, come to set you free? Why? It's because the Jewish Messiah Christ was not the same as the Jesus Messiah Christ. The Jewish Messiah Christ was not equal to the Jesus Messiah Christ. What does this mean? It means that the expectations that the Jewish people had for the Messiah was not the same as the person of Jesus. The salvation that the Jewish people thought they were going to get was not the same as the salvation that Jesus was bringing for them. When we look at the history of the Jewish people, the major salvation story that we all think of is what? The Exodus, when God saved them from from the tyranny of Egypt, the slavery of Egypt, right, of Pharaoh. And because this is the major story that we think of, and and Jewish people thought of as well, in the minds of the Jewish people around Jesus' time, they were looking for something similar. They were looking for a physical freedom from the Roman Empire. They were looking for Jesus to come or the Jewish Messiah to come and to wipe away all the nations that are oppressing them. This was the kind of salvation that the Jewish people were looking for. And as Christians, we still fall into the same trap. A lot of times we have this mindset. We're like, God, come save me from this sucky job. God, come save me from this terrible boss. God, come save me from this poverty, right? I mean, these are good things to ask for, but God's idea of salvation is much different. He was wanting to save the Israelites from a spiritual bondage. And one thing the Israelites didn't realize is that the promise for salvation didn't come from what God did for them in Egypt That was not the promise that God gave them. God's promise came to them all the way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, verse 15. This is a prophecy that God himself is telling. He's saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise or crush your head and you shall strike or bruise his heel. God is promising a victory over sin. And this is what is known as Proto-evangelism. Proto-evangelism. And we see the word evangelism again, right? It means good news. But what does proto mean? Proto means the first or the original. So this is the first time that we hear the good news. It doesn't come in Matthew when Jesus appears. It comes in Genesis when God makes a promise. I will save you. I will crush the head of the serpent for you. Notice that there's no mention of just the Jewish people. God is not saying, I'll save the Jewish people. God's salvation was for all people. This was a prophecy when Adam and Eve were the only two humans alive. His promise to even Abraham when he made a covenant with him, Pastor Emily preached a little bit about this last week, his promise was to be a blessing to all nations, not just to the Israelites. And we see this promise first in Genesis 3. So Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was a Messiah Christ for all people, for a salvation of our souls, not just for the Israelites to conquer over their enemies, not just for us to conquer over our daily struggles, not just for us to ask God for when we need him, right? Right? And it's good, like I said, it's good to ask God for these things, to, to ask God, God, help me in this situation. God, help me in this situation. But we have to keep our eyes focused on what our real current state is, what our real salvation looks like, the eternal struggle, not just our daily struggle. God has a greater victory for you and for me than our current circumstances. And God had a greater victory for the Jewish people as well. The Jewish Messiah Christ was not equal to Jesus Messiah Christ. And this brings me to my last point. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of God. Mark ends his introductory statement, his his thesis statement with this phrase, the Son of God, in, in Greek, again. It's translated as huiyu theou. Everyone say huiou theou. Okay, this is actually a possessive form of huyas, which is son, and theos, which is God. So if we have the possessive form of son of God, it's son of God, right? Son of God. This was a very controversial thing to say during Mark's time. It's not just a controversial thing to say. It's actually a blasphemous thing to say. It could get you killed. If you say this guy is the son of God, then you will probably be burned or like like crucified even, right? And again, this is one of those things that Jesus never says about himself. He never says, I'm the Son of God. But we see other people say it about him. And the first time that we see someone say, You are the Son of God, comes in what we read today in Mark 1, verse 9 to 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens. Immediately. He saw the heavens. Being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying what? You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. So the first person that we see Jesus say say Jesus is the son of God is actually God himself. Wow. That's crazy, right? Not only that, but look at the verse again. It says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now, this is something that we have to understand. His identity as God's son, as his beloved son, as his well-pleasing son, is established before he does anything. Before Jesus does a single miracle, before he teaches, a single, uh, he teaches a single thing about the kingdom, before he goes to the cross, before he does any kind of ministry, God says, I love you. I'm well pleased with you. You're my son. What a crazy love, right? What a crazy love. Jesus' identity did not come from what he did, but who God said he was. And it's actually the same for us. We actually have this kind of relationship with God as well. We are also sons and daughters of God. In Romans 8, 29, I don't have this up here, but in Romans 8.29, it says that Jesus was the firstborn among many brothers. Who Who is Paul talking about here? Among many brothers. That's us. People that believe that Jesus died and rose again, right? Christians. We are sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ. But we forget this. Even as a minister. Even as someone who preaches. Even as someone who leads praise. Even as someone who does the work of God, we often forget that we are sons and daughters of God we often act like we have to earn God's love. Oh, I have to come to this prayer meeting. I have to go and and worship harder. I have to worship extravagantly to get God's love. But this is the same attitude that the Jewish rulers had. If I follow these rules, then God will love me. God will accept me. Or because I keep these laws and commandments, God loves and accepts me, right? But the order of things matters in the Bible. The order of which we do things. It's not, if I do these things, God will love me. But because God loves me, I do these things. Because I love God, I will keep his commandments. Because he loved me first and I love him, I will do what he asks me to do. See, there's a difference between doing things out of the motivations of our heart. Doing things out of obligation or doing things out of self-reliance or self-satisfaction. There's a difference between doing that and doing it because you're a son and doing it because you're a daughter. Remember who you are. When you remember who you are, you will act that way naturally. You will act like a son. You will act like a daughter. You don't have to try to be one because you already are one. God is already well-pleased with you. You are his beloved. You don't need to feel like you have to do something to please him. But one thing we have to remember, and I stress again, it's that God is not looking to save us from our physical situation. He's not looking to save us from our current work or current relational problem. Even though we are his children, even though he might want that for us, that's not what he's ultimately looking to do for us. How do I know this? Because if you look at what happens to Jesus next, it just proves that God is not looking to our comfort, right? What happens next? In verse 12 and 13, it says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. You see, even Jesus, who was the Son of God, who is the Son of God, God drove him into the wilderness. Now, the wilderness is not a place where you can sip on a cup of tea. It's not a place where it's luxurious, right? It's a place where it's dry. There's a place devoid of life. It's a place where you hunger and you thirst. And Jesus was in the desert for 40 days. 40 days. I can barely fast for like one day and I'll be like, oh, God, I'm I'm so weak. I can't do this any longer, right? 40 days is a long time. And a lot of times we compare the wilderness to seasons of life, right? When we say, like, oh, I'm in a wilderness season, I'm in a desert season. It's kind of like a Christian joke. We're saying, oh, I don't really feel God's presence in my life right now anymore. But why would the Spirit of God drive Jesus into the wilderness? Why would the Spirit immediately drive him into the wilderness? That's a weird saying, right? Jesus was doing something when he was driven into the desert. What was he doing? He was fulfilling what the Israelites failed to do. So, what, what, what is it that the Israelites failed to do? The mission that God gave to the, to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was to bring people into the kingdom of God. Remember, again, in Genesis 12 3, it says, In you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Bring people into the kingdom. While this was the promise that God gave to Abraham, it was also a command. Bless all the nations. Bring them into the kingdom. But how do we know that the Israelites failed to do this and that Jesus was fulfilling it? Sometimes it's just as easy as the numbers. Okay? If we look at the numbers, how many days were the Isra- or how many years were the Israelites in the desert? Forty, right? How many days was Jesus in the wilderness? Forty. So 40 and 40, while days don't really add up to years, it's still the same. It's, there's symbolism involved here. Forty days, Jesus is suffering on behalf of us so that we could enter his kingdom, while the Israelites were in suffering for 40 years. And while the Israelites, they did, eventually end up going into the promised land of Canaan, right? There was still much disobedience. There was still much grumbling. There was still no faith. There was no trusting in God. And ultimately, they failed their mission. They did not live as if they were sons of God. They still lived as if they were slaves in Egypt. But Jesus passed every trial in the desert. He triumphed over every temptation in the wilderness. And then he began his ministry. See, Jesus began his ministry already established as the son of God. Not having to earn this title, not having to earn the sonship, but choosing to be obedient to God's calling over his life, even though it meant suffering for him. So this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is just the introduction. We have a few more weeks to go into the rest of the book. There's 16 chapters. But one thing we have to understand that this first verse, it's not just a controversial statement. It's not just an insightful introduction to the rest of his book. It's also a confession. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is saying that this book is about the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed and chosen one. The one who is the Son of God, the one who is God. This is the confession that Mark makes with this statement. This is the gospel. Do you believe it? This is how Mark starts his gospel. This is what he's writing for, to confess these things. It's something that could get him killed around his time. And this is, actually, we'll see later, this is a spoiler. This is the exact statement that gets Jesus killed. This is the exact words that the high priest says, are you Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God? And he says yes, and they start ripping their clothes and start jarring their teeth and stuff and they want to crucify him because of this it's not just a good story that we listen to i'm not up here to tell you a good story while it is a good story i'm here to preach the gospel to you if i haven't done that then i haven't done my job this is the gospel let me ask you today do you know the gospel do you know who jesus is Do you know that Jesus is the anointed one, the son of the living God? Do you live like it? If your answer is yes, do you live like it? Do you live like you're a son? Do you live like you believe in this gospel? Are we willing to put our lives on it? Mark is doing that here. He's putting his life on this Jesus. The call that Jesus has for us today is the same that he gave 2,000 years ago, right? He's saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray.